It's time now in the development of our exposition of Van Til to look at what I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, his polemical, polemical context. Van Til's polemical context. We've been looking for some time now at the constructive context, the background for the development of his theology, uh, particularly in Old Princeton and Old Amsterdam. And it's time now to shift our focus to things that might not be as familiar to students uh, who would be familiar with Van Til's work, because this is going to drive us now to talk about the context of Boston personalism. The first side of that's going to be Boston personalism. And I want us to get a feel for Boston personalism as a foil of sorts against which Van Til's Trinitarian theology operates, a polemical context and background for it. Now, it's important to have a basic understanding of personalism if we are to grasp the historical context and the apologetical value of Van Til's formulations that God is one person, three person, one absolute personality, three subsistences, uh, etc. And so as we do this, it's important to try to define personalism as carefully and clearly as we can. Definitions of personalism abound, but what is it all about? What is personalism as a philosophical movement in the 19th and 20th century all about? Well, as a movement, personalism stands over against any system of thought that offers an abstract or impersonal account of reality. According to some personalists, Greek philosophical reflection about the nature of ultimate reality is a good illustration. Plato thought ultimate reality is the good that exists um, in an ideal realm of forms. Thales thought that ultimate reality was water. Heraclitus thought that the basic stuff of reality was fire. Democritus thought that ultimate reality consisted in multiple discrete atomic units. In these and other philosophical depictions of ultimate reality in the Greek uh, milieu, reality is in some way or another impersonal. And it is against that impersonal conception of ultimate reality that the personalists rebel. For personalism, ultimate reality is fundamentally and irreducibly personal in nature. We're not yet to the uh, species of personalism known as Boston personalism, but basic definitions of personalism have been offered by various scholars. Personalism is perhaps best defined as a system of thought that affirms, quote, that the ultimate reality of the world is a divine person who sustains the universe by a continuous act of creative will. That is from Sahakian's History of Philosophy, page 271. Edgar Sheffield Brightman, uh, and he is, uh, Brightman is one of the best known 
uh, Boston personalists, Edgar Sheffield Brightman, and he's the most important personalist of the 20th century, says that in its broadest sense, personalism is a way of thinking that makes personality the key to all philosophical problems, both about value and about epistemology and metaphysics. John H. Lavely observes helpfully that personalism, quote, is a philosophical perspective or system for which person is the ontological ultimate and for which personality is thus the fundamental explanatory principle. Now that is useful. See, personalism is either the ontological ultimate or personality the fundamental explanatory principle. So as we do philosophy from the standpoint of personalism, personality will be the central ontological and explanatory reality. Rather than making spirit or Geist, Hegel and the German absolute idealist, system, Bosenkett, impersonal will, Schopenhauer, or event, Alfred North Whitehead, the most basic metaphysical principle, the personalists opt instead for personality or person as the fundamental category to interpret all of reality in light of. Ultimate reality is person or essentially personal in nature. Now, although definitions of personalism have been offered by many, there are many species of personalism. And I just want to make you familiar with this by way of a taxonomic overview. Uh, William S. Sahakian, in his History of uh, Western Philosophy, lists these varieties of personalism. There is theistic personalism, Bound, Brightman, and Knudsen. Atheistic personalism, that might sound like a contradiction, John M. E. McTaggart. Pantheistic personalism, William Stern. Absolute personalism, Josiah Royce. Realistic personalism, Douglas Clyde McIntosh. Relativistic personalism, Charles Renovere. Panpsychistic personalism, Leibniz, Walter T. Stace, James Ward. And anthropomorphic personalism. Rufus Burrow, Jr. categorizes less typical and more typical types of personalism. And the former, the less typical, includes atheistic personalism, pantheistic personalism, absolutistic personalism, and the latter class includes teleological personalism, uh, George Holmes Howison, realistic personalism, George, Georgia Harkness, or theistic personalism, Borden Parker Bowne. Now, there's also a way to describe personalism along the lines of idealism and realism. And there are numerous works that can be consulted if you want to look into the different forms of personalism. But the kind or species of personalism that we're going to deal with will be the species of Boston personalism, which we can call theistic personalism. And if you're looking for the 20th, 19th, and 20th century expressions of personalism that are mutualist in character and stand over against Van Til and the Reformed 
confessional tradition, this is the place to begin. The, the theistic personalism of the Boston personalist. Now, in order to understand the basic contours of theistic personalism, we will examine the basic contributions of Borden-Parker-Bowne, B-O-W-N-E, Edgar Sheffield-Brightman, who is already here on the board, and A.C. Knudsen. A.C. Knudsen. We'll, we'll deal with some of his work as well. And we're going to note specifically Knudsen's proposed reconstruction of the Trinity on the basis of perichoresis and be able to contrast that to the orthodox expressions of Van Til, Bavink, and the Hodges. Now when you start with what we might call the father of theistic personalism, we come to the thought of Borden-Parker-Bowne, B-O-W-N-E, Borden-Parker-Bowne. His basic contribution to metaphysics is that for any object to be real, it must be either, quote, a person, an act of a person, or the experience of a person. Uh, this is from his book, appropriately entitled, Personalism. In fact, his critique of impersonalism, entitled The Failure of Impersonalism, enshrines this argument, quote, the essential meaning of personality is selfhood, self-consciousness, self-control, and the power to know. Since God exhibits all of these qualities, the objections to affirming a supreme person are largely verbal, he says. Moreover, he said all human existence depends on, quote, the living will and power of the supreme person. End of quote. In fact, Bound believes so strongly that only personalism can make sense of human experience that he concludes the chapter, uh, final chapter's book, with the following observation, the alternative is personalism or nothing. So what does this have to do with Van Til and with the development of the representational principle and the absolute personality of God that we saw mediated through Bavink and A.A. Hodge. Well, notice that Bound does not shy away from referring to God as a supreme person. In fact, Peter Petrocci, a late 20th century personalist, underscores the identification of God with a single divine subject in Bound's thought. He says, Bound expounded his personalism or his personalistic idealism, which held that the creator person God and the created persons constitute the real. The creator God is a person, and this leads to the point that we need to consider apologetically. And that is a point that's brought up by Edgar Sheffield Brightman. So Borden Parker Bound introduces the idea that ultimate reality is person. It has to be the thought of a person, the act of a person, or the consequence of some personal experience. Edgar Sheffield Brightman gave a more rigorous explication to personalist philosophy. And he's the best known and I think most creative of the Boston personalists. And he shares Bound's theistic personalism and adds to it in this way. 
He says that ultimate reality, and this is a quote from Brightman, is a society of persons. A society of persons. The ultimate person and finite persons. Summarizing Brightman, John Lavely states that in Brightman's thought, God is a conscious person who creates finite persons and cooperates with them in a cosmic endeavor. Now, while more can be said about Brightman's contribution to personalism, our point is simply to note that there is no modification in Brightman's work of Bound's idea that God is a supreme conscious person, a self-identical subject. This provides the central metaphysical claim for the personalist. God is a supreme, ultimate, conscious person who creates finite persons, and in Bound's language, we have therefore a society of persons, divine and human. If you're looking for a philosopher who brings into view social Trinitarianism or the social conception of persons existing together in a society, divine and human, uh, Brightman is a leading candidate for that. But neither Bound nor Brightman developed personalism along explicitly Trinitarian lines of thought. That was left to another leading person, personalist, A.C. Knudsen. A.C. Knudsen, who is not as well known as Bound, he's not as well known as Brightman, but he tried to develop a Trinitarian doctrine of perichoresis along personalistic lines. In 1930, Van Til reviewed A.C. Knudsen's Doctrine of God. In his analysis, as it appears in the review, Van Til chides Knudsen for bringing God into the flux of history so that eternal and temporal elements have been commingled with one another. Now let's just pause right there and let me note what that means. Think back to the previous module. What does Van Til say the chief sin of 19th and 20th century philosophy and theology is correlativism. Or, in our common parlance today, mutualism. Van Til says that the fundamental failure of Knudsen's doctrine of God, when A.C. Knudsen tries to talk about the Trinity, Van Til says the problem is correlativism. Knudsen brings God into the flux of history so that eternal and temporal elements have been commingled in one another. In Ventil's estimate, Knudsen's Christology virtually denies Chalcedon. Why? Because in the Incarnation, one of the members of the Godhead takes temporality into his own being. A fundamental denial of Chalcedon. But Ventil did not interact as much as he could have with another fascinating element in Knudsen's doctrine of God that certainly must have piqued his curiosity. We're going to address that and finish the analysis that Van Til began. 
And here's the point that I want you to appreciate. For the personalist, especially for Knudsen in his treatment of the Trinity, not only does his thought betray a form of correlativism, but for the personalist, God is a single self-identical subject or, or a supreme person. A supreme person. Given this basic and non-negotiable uh, tenet, a unique problem arises for Knudsen and for the theistic personalists. That problem is the status of persons plural within the Godhead. And here's why it is a problem. If personality resides within the unity of the Godhead, what about the diversity within the Godhead? The problem that plagues the personalist is that they begin with a uni personal or unipersonal conception of the Godhead, and it raises this question, what are we going to say about the tripersonal? Questions are going to abound. Knudsen is aware of this problem, and he attempts in his section on the Trinity to provide a personalistic account of both unity and diversity within the Godhead. He realizes that Baun and Breitman, speaking of God as an absolute or supreme person, have not done justice, as they should, to the three hypostases, the three persons of the Godhead. And so he begins by recognizing an, uh, two main periods of Trinitarian theological development. The first period, culminating roughly in the New Testament period, he says, involved recognizing the unique presence of God in Christ, a presence that called forth a worshipful attitude toward him. The second period, extending roughly up to and just beyond Nicaea, quote, was characterized by the identification of this person with a distinct and eternal mode of being with the divine essence. The motivating factor in back of these developments was simply a desire to recognize the divinity of Christ and provide a conceptual framework that adequately expresses his unique nature as divine. According to Knudsen, these two periods mark the main, or at least the most basic, development in Trinitarian theology prior to St. Augustine as they begin to express the implications for the deity of Christ. Now, Knudsen next traces five stages in the unfolding development of the church's recognition of Christ as identified with a mode of being within God himself. The first stage was equating, was equating Christ with the logos of Stoic philosophy, the significance of that move was to affirm in him a rational status. But the weakness of the apologist was that the Logos was only potentially and eternally in God. This means that the generation of the Son is constructed along temporal rather than eternal lines. In order to correct this deficiency, the second phase of development emerges in Origins theology, who taught the eternal generation of the Son, but 
Origen's view of generation entailed, entailed a form of subordination. So amending the subordination of Origen, the church at Nicaea maintained vigorously the doctrine of homoousios. The son is ontologically equal to the father. He's not only eternally generated from the father, but his eternal generation does not in any way imply ontological subordination. But to qualify as truly Trinitarian, the church's theology, theology need not be merely dyadic, but it needed to be Trinitarian. And that fourth stage of development, then, Knudsen notes, is the Cappadocian contribution of a sharp distinction between the terms usia, essence, and hypostasis, person. The spirit was recognized fully as the third hypostasis of God, since, however, the Cappadocians viewed the Father as the source of deity within the Son, they failed to remove the specter of subordinationism, and so it felt, uh, fell to Augustine to do this. And Knudsen himself notes that Augustine affirmed the absolute equality of the three persons who are totally and absolutely God. And then Knudsen, citing Augustine, says, actually, everything positive that was said of the Father and the Son was said of the Spirit, and each was um, identified with total deity. And he says that this gives some indication of the idea that within the Godhead you had this scenario. This is a quote that he takes from Augustine. He says, one Augustine being relayed now uh, Augustine being relayed through Knudsen. One is as much as the three together, nor are the two any more than the one, and they are in each other, and all in each, and each in all, and all in all, and all are one. To this observation, Knudsen adds, this gives some indication what was meant by such a statement may be gathered from the unity of of consciousness. Now explaining himself, he says that this unity of consciousness creates a problem. And it's the problem that the theistic personalists are trying to deal with. If you begin with God as a supreme person, if you think of a unipersonal single consciousness, the question is, how do we find a way to speak meaningfully of the plurality within the Godhead, of the threeness within the Godhead? And that is something that Knudsen says is an extremely difficult problem. Outlining several benefits of traditional Trinitarianism, here is what Knudsen argues, and here is where he takes his attempt at expressing the diversity in the Godhead. He says, if God, in the totality of his being, is a unitary personality, I'll pause right there, if God is unipersonal, if God is a supreme person, he goes on, it is at least confusing to continue to speak of three persons in the Godhead. Now pause that quote. This is from his work, 
the doctrine of God. He's saying, if God is in the unity of his being, a unitary personality, he says it is at least confusing to continue to speak of the three persons in the Godhead. Now, here's what I want you to see by way of initial observation that distances this theistic personalism so far from Van Til and the Orthodox Reformed view. For the personalist, it is not profitable and positively confusing to speak of three persons if we conceive of God as a unitary personality. He goes on. At the same time, there's a deep-seated desire not to surrender the values of the orthodox theory. The result is that three different ways have arisen by which effort is made to retain the essential truth of the older Trinitarianism, listen, without committing oneself to its sharply defined personal distinctions within the deity. In other words, what Knudsen is saying here is that we must consider God to be a unitary personality. And if he is a unipersonal God, if he is a supreme person, the sharp distinctions are going to need to be dispensed with. Now, think to the Orthodox tradition. Think to Hodge, Bavink, and Van Til. How are the persons distinguished from one another in Orthodox Trinitarian theology, in confessional Trinitarianism, in the classical tradition of Reformed confessional Trinitarianism? Those sharp distinctions are the expression of incommunicable personal properties which are also relations of personal subsistence. When Knudsen denies the sharp distinctions among the persons, what he's saying, if he uses the language of the confessionally reformed tradition, is that if we affirm that God is a supreme person, if he's unipersonal, then the incommunicable personal properties that differentiate forever the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the relations of personal subsistence within the Godhead, those must be abandoned. We want the value of Orthodox Trinitarian terminology, but not the sharply defined personal distinctions within the deity. So he's saying that if we consider God to be a unitary personality, then we need to find some way to avoid these incommunicable personal properties. He wishes to retain the practical value of Trinitarian theology while denying its doctrinal content. And it's fundamentally, in that sense, modernist. But more precisely, what does Knudsen have in mind when it comes to those sharply defined distinctions? Well, he says this. 
He wants to avoid the notion of three distinct centers of self-consciousness in the Godhead. It is this affirmation he deems not so clear. Knudsen is not concerned to maintain that God is one conscious as an entailment of his numerical unity and divine simplicity, and that God is three conscious as an entailment of the incommunicable personal properties, the subsistent relations, and the coherent relations. Why is this the case? Knudsen allows his personalism to move him in the direction of rationalism, where affirming a single consciousness within the Godhead entails a denial of a bona fide tri-consciousness. If God is a supreme person, then Knudsen contends it's confusing to speak in the traditional sense of three persons with incommunicable personal properties and three distinct self-conscious persons. The older Trinitarianism of the past with its clear-cut distinctions among the hypostases is precisely what Knudsen wants to exclude. Listen to the way he puts it. This is page uh, 423. He says, the personality of God would seem to exclude the older idea of personality in God. Personality of God is unity. Personality in God would be these incommunicable personal properties and these relations of personal subsistence. He's saying no to that and saying that there's personality of God affirmed, personality in God denied. Knudsen remarks, quote, the tendency would be to fall back upon the psychological as opposed to social interpretation of the Trinity and to combine it with a form of Sabellianism or an agnostic attitude toward the problem. Now, laying aside everything else that Knudsen said. Knudsen does not want to admit ignorance when it comes to how God can be one person and three persons, one absolute personality and three distinct persons, one conscious and three conscious. Why? Because he takes a view of divine unity that renders suspect and undesirable the idea of incommunicable personal properties and distinct subsistences who are that essence of God. In other words, when Knudsen is affirming a one consciousness, he is denying in that affirmation a numerical unity of essence and a divine simplicity in which the three persons distinctly subsist. And so when we talk about the mystery of divine life, the lesson that we learn from the Boston Personalists is that they so emphasize the divine unity of God's personality 
that they rationalistically come to deny the tri-personality of God in any discernible creedal or confessional sense of the term. They want to retain the value of Trinitarian doctrine, the value of Trinitarian language, the value of it, but deny its content because it's confusing and doesn't comport well with the notion of unipersonality and one consciousness. Now, how does that relate to Van Til? This is, in two ways, fundamentally different from Van Til. First, it's correlativist. The absolute person exists in a society of persons and enters into the flux of history, as Van Til talked about. But at the same time, the concept of person of God precludes the concept of personality in God. And so the equal ultimacy of unity and diversity, of one in three and three in one, that is fundamentally sacrificed on a rationalistic altar of philosophical pre-commitment. And in this sense, then, the Boston Personalist though they want to speak of God in some sense as a supreme person, they do so to the detriment and loss of authentic tripersonal distinction within the Godhead. The relations of subsistence and coherence have been jettisoned in favor of a rationalistically reconceived unipersonality which is not discernibly Trinitarian in any creedal or confessional sense of the term. And so personalism is on a collision course with Van Til, Boving, and Hodge. Personalism, Boston personalism, is on a collision course with Old Princeton, Old Amsterdam, and what Van Til represents in my language, Old Westminster. It's on a collision course because it's correlativist and rationalistically recalcitrant to the tri personal God. And this is one strand of polemical context, one layer of polemical context that helps you recognize that when Van Til's speaking of an absolute personality, when Van Til's speaking of a tri-personal God, he's doing it in a way that sets off Reformed confessional Trinitarianism from the Boston personalism that sacrifices triunity and absoluteness in the historic and orthodox senses of the term. So we're going to turn in our final section to consider the reverse error of Gordon Clark and the rationalism of neo-evangelicalism. And we'll do that um, as we begin the next lecture.